0: Good evening and welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science where in front of an expert panel and a live audience we're posing the question tonight, where will we all live? My name is Mark Easton and I'm the BBC's home editor. Home, not homes, I should point out. Although this small difference has escaped those who sent me press releases about guttering, kitchen design and most recently an email entitled Doors how they make a difference to your home. (laughs) But tonight we are discussing homes and the now, I think, pretty much accepted fact that the UK is failing in one of its most basic responsibilities to provide its citizens with a decent and affordable place to live, a home. As the late Maya Angelou wrote, the ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Now, at the last election, I asked each of the major parties' would-be housing ministers a question I'm going to ask this audience here this evening. None of the politicians, I should say, gave me an honest answer to the question. There's a surprise. See if you are more honest. And the question was this. Would it be better for house prices to go down or go up? Okay. So, first of all, all those who think it would be better for house prices to go down, say, down. down. Okay. And those who think it would be better for them to go up, say, up. Oh, right. Well, quite a young audience here at, uh, at LSE. But there, uh, in a nutshell, is the, is the political challenge of housing. For those voters already on the housing ladder, falling prices can be disastrous and for those trying to get on the ladder rising prices can be disastrous the average house cost three to four times the average salary in the 90s today it's six to seven times and in parts of London 32 times nowhere is the affordability crisis more acute than here in the capital and the southeast and for affordability crisis read misery for hundreds of thousands of people stuck in unsuitable or overcrowded accommodation or increasingly actually over the last few years homeless there are a few people in the audience tonight who are going to tell us their stories we'll start with Holly Baxter where's Holly hello Holly Um, now you're going to tell us a thing or two I think about unsuitable accommodation tell us your story
1: I graduated in 2010. Um, I wasn't able to afford a house, well, a proper house, after uh, my student loan finished. So I started living in a place with other people that had officially been declared uninhabitable. It didn't have windows. It was in a sort of very, very top um, of an attic over a theatre, over two pubs. And um, from there, eventually, when we were chased out, I um, ended up living... I had a full time job at the time um, living in my friend's airing cupboard. So and, you lived um, in an airing cupboard? Yes, I lived in an airing, airing cupboard. cupboard. <laughs> a real airing cupboard. Um, How did you fit? I, I sort of just, like, curled up into the fetal position. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there was there was no bed, the, you know, there wasn't a duvet or anything like that. I, I was literally curled up next to a boiler in an airing cupboard for six weeks while going to work full-time, trying to accrue enough of a deposit that I could get into rented accommodation. And now I live um, in a rented house with four other people, which I can never, ever see myself being able to move out of. Everybody I know of my age who has full-time jobs... Um, is now living in a similar situation, sharing with between four and ten people. And um, I just, I can't imagine that ever-ending. I can't imagine ever being able to own my own home. Me and my flatmate, we wanted to get a two-person flat, and we can't even imagine that.
0: Okay. Well, also in the audience tonight, we've got Laura McGuinness. Laura, where are you? Hello. Uh, a management consultant, um, and you, you want to buy a place with your boyfriend, I understand. Now, I think, to be fair, you earn probably a little bit more money than, than Holly... But you, you can't get on the housing ladder either. Why not?
2: No. Similar, when I graduated, I came to London. I've been here about five years. When I came, the average house price was about ten times my salary. So I set about saving a lot, living in the same uh, quite dire shared houses. Um, quite a stressful job, um, being woken up in the middle of the night. Lots of mess all of the time. Um, Five years later, I've been moved on by the landlord, usually. Um, I've been in four houses now, um, and uh, I've met my boyfriend, and we, we want to team up and buy somewhere together. So um, we have been actively looking, and we're in a much better position now.
0: You've got, af- a, got a deposit, have you?
2: Yes, after kind of collectively 10 years of savings between us. Um, And we've been, we have made a few offers on houses uh, this year. Um, We've been very careful in looking um, at the previously paid prices. um, And we've been consistently outbid on everything. um, Always by buy-to-let investors and also some cash buyers from abroad. Um, very frustrating. Um, so you think
0: you know, local workers like yourself are being squeezed out by investors and foreigners?
2: Uh, it's a contributing factor, yes. Um, but the, um, the houses we've bid on, they've gone uh, for up to £70,000 over the asking price. Um, looking at different houses in the area, they seem to be going up by about £10,000 a month. And despite the collective 10 years of savings between us, we cannot keep up with that, and we both have professional city jobs.
0: OK, well, th- thanks, to Laura. And I don't know whether you've tried it, Laura and Holly, but the, the BBC actually has an online housing affordability calculator. It's on our website, and you can put in how much you could afford in terms of a deposit or, and a monthly mortgage payment and, or, or, or in terms of your, your rent, uh, and it tells you where you can live. Now, with grown-up daughters still living at home, I was a little disappointed to learn the nearest they could afford to live their jobs in London was the Mendips. Um, as a result, I won't be taking advantage of the withdrawal of the spare room subsidy at any time soon. Now, we have an excellent panel to help us try and answer our question, where will we all live? I'm going to ask each of them for one quick opening thought on what they would do to solve the housing crisis for Holly and for Laura and for millions of others. Richard Blakeway, Deputy Mayor for Housing, Land and Property in London. Richard, what would you do?
3: Um, I think, um, firstly, we need to recognise the um, scale of the challenge that we face and the fact that we don't have a problem that's happened overnight. We've had a problem that's been brewing for about 30 years. And unlike health, unlike education, where over the last 100 years, you could argue, a big national consensus has emerged on prioritizing those and tackling those, the same hasn't really happened with housing. And the biggest failure around housing that flows into everything else, around affordability and homelessness and everything else, is housing supply. And the fact that the current bunch who build homes aren't building enough homes. And how we address that means a radical change, a structural change, not some tinkering. I think specifically on um, the points um, that Holly and Laura raised, and I, um, um, I mean, there's kind of two, two very specific thoughts for you, Holly. First, I think, you know, one of the things which employers can do, employers are increasingly <coughs> saying to us that, hey, the cost of housing is affecting... Their employees in London and one of those things which they could specifically do is um, provide support for the rental deposit in the same way they might do with a loan for travel card or something similar it could be that for the rental deposit and that's something we've been working on with Shelter to say well look isn't that something employers could do and specifically for you Laura I think one of the things which is well worth looking at and it's a challenge in a high value city like London around prices but one of the things which really needs to be looked at is the opportunity that shared ownership provides. At the moment, it's treated as some sort of... The the face is not promising on this. (laughs) But if you just give me a moment, the average deposit someone who wants to buy in London will pay is about £60,000. Fast sum of money. Um, Under shared ownership, the average deposit is about £8,000. Far more realistic. Okay. And I think that's uh, something that needs to be expanded hugely to help all the working Londoners who are struggling, notwithstanding the deep scepticism from Holly and Laura. Here. Now, the next, next person I'm going
0: to come to, John Stewart, is apparently one of the current bunch who are not building enough houses. You, uh, you represent the Home Builders' uh, Federation, John. Uh, what was your answer to the question, where will we all live?
4: Well, first of all, I hope tonight I won't be dominated just by London, because I appreciate this is the London School of Economics and both of our guests probably trying to live in London. But London is at the most extreme of everything you look at, under supply, affordability and so on. I think there are two reasons why we haven't built enough homes for probably 25 years, maybe going back a bit further. The first is the economic cycle. Gordon Brown did not abolish boom and bust. And we have, uh, over many years, experienced in this country... Pickups in house-building, which always explode when the economy crashes and interest rates have gone up. In the most recent case, it was a credit crunch. And house-builders can't build homes if they haven't got customers and customers disappear in a recession. So that's one of the factors over which we don't seem to have too much control. Despite the brilliance of economists, uh, we don't seem to be able to control the economic cycle. The other core element (coughs) uh, is, and I'm going to say it, I'm sorry, but is the planning system. In 1991, we introduced what's called the plan-led system and in that, local authorities were given control not just over the location of development, as occurred before that. We had the Planning Act of 1947, um, which was all about ribbon development and urban sprawl and so on. But local authorities were given responsibility for allocating enough land to meet required needs, which meant they had to estimate how many homes were needed. Since then, well, in the 90s certainly, local authorities put a cap on house building so that by 1991, sorry, 2001 we were building fewer homes than in the trough of the previous recession, And planning has become more and more prescriptive. I believe that most of the housing will have to be produced by the private sector, probably about three quarters. I can go into that in a minute if you like. Uh, In order to do that, the private sector has to be able to meet demand. In order to be able to meet demand, it cannot do that with the rigid controls exerted by planners on the location of development, the the number of homes that we build, uh, the mix of housing, right down to specifying the bricks. And the window catchers that we
0: use—the two are completely incompatible. Okay, thank you, John. Um, Rachel Fisher, you're head of policy at the National Housing Federation. How would, how would you solve the housing crisis?
5: I think the first thing I would do is probably think about the nature of that crisis and how it is actually reflected differently in different places. So, in London, as we've been seeing, we have really acute issues around undersupply and lack of building and, and, and those issues. But actually, in other areas in the country, we actually have a, we have a surfeit of housing. We have too many. And so what we really need to think about is how we link economic development and job creation and investment with house building. And it's awfully difficult to do that when we don't have a kind of national plan that does that, that links together. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Planners. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> Yay, planning. Um, we, we need to think strategically about how we link together jobs, how we link together um, house building, and how we link to th- together um, infrastructure development as well. So you can plan all the roads that you want, but whether or not they lead to any houses, yeah. that's left up to a local authority. Yeah. So we need to think more strategically about that. I would also... Um, uh, kind of chime in with Richard that we need to be thinking more about um, shared ownership and other models of ownership and really also actually starting to think about how we improve the rental model. And I know lots of skepticism about shared ownership, but we need to think about what it is in our culture that drives us to want to own a home, that that is the only model of housing that we think is actually aspirational. And we need to think about that, I think, as a society.
0: Okay. Um, Paul Cheshire, uh, your Professor Emeritus of Economic Geography here at LSE, um, same question. How would you solve the housing crisis? Well, I think it's uh, to start with, it's it's actually a manufactured
6: problem. Uh, It's a manufactured problem because we're forced to live on... Everyone in England lives on only 10% of the land area of England. The problem goes back even longer, I think, than my colleagues have been saying. It goes right back to 1955. Since 1955, the real price of housing, housing relative to incomes... Has increased more than fivefold. But the price of land on which you put houses has increased nearly 15fold. The problem is that we set absolute binding limits on the expansion of our cities back in 1955. It wasn't actually, it was after 1947. And you simply can't expand beyond them. Not only that, we have a, a system of planning which is Encourages confrontation. Everything becomes a challenge and a counter challenge. So it's not just that you can't build out; you can't build up either. And everything is an. I mean, I've got a, a, a young colleague in rather the same sort of position as you're in, living in Swiss Cottage. There's a proposal to build an 81 uh, metre block of flats. She's living in a cupboard, so to speak, and she'd really like some more housing in that area. Swiss Cottage is a fairly scruffy sort of area. I don't see any w- reason why there shouldn't be an 81-metre block of flats. Apologies sir. for those who live in Swiss <laughs> Cottage, by the way. <laughs> well, the actual bit. It's a major traffic junction. It's, on, it's well yeah. served by the tube yeah. system.
0: Uh, but, you know, there's a great sort of not here, no, nothing. You might well, be able to see it from hands to come, We're going to come back. <laughs> Our final panelist, panelist is, is Wayne Hemingway from Hemingway Design. And, and, and Wayne, an outspoken critic of the way we approach the challenge of providing homes in Britain.
7: Yeah, well, all of the panellists so far have, have said very valid points. There's, there's no silver bullet to this. But one of the things that, that I think is very important is it, it's counterproductive to a, a balanced society, that you, you buy something often on credit, and it makes you money while you sit back and do not. Uh, And I I just think that in in itself... But that is a self-serving thing. You know, if if you think that 65% of the British population own a property, still it's that significant. Therefore, you've got... You know, any government doesn't want to upset that 65% because that 65% wins you an election. And, it's uh,
0: the, and that's the vote, lot that vote more as well. And that's yeah. the lot that
7: vote, that vote more. But yet the 35% are, are being put in a position where they're, you know, we're supposed to leave this world a, a better place than we found it. You know, that, that's, a, that's what humans are supposed to do. And all we're doing at the moment is making those 65% richer and those 35, I mean, very broad terms, <coughs> those 35%, which includes you young'uns, uh, poorer. And that's, and that's making, it can't be right to have a society where one portion of the, of the society getting richer and, and a section are getting, are getting poorer. It's got, to, it's got to end in tears, as that? And we have to stop that. And that means, you know, when you lot clapped at the beginning about house prices going down, and, and, and you know, we, it, it's probably not going to happen. But it, it, to an extent, it has to slow down. It would be good if it went down. And the only way that that's going to happen is by massively increasing supply. OK. The issue, then, is <laughs> supply. You're not alone,
0: Wayne, in thinking that we need more houses. Um, It's ten years since the government commissioned Barker Review of Housing Supply in England was published, recommending that something like 230,000 new homes should be built each year simply to keep pace with increasing demand. Now, last year, England saw just 109,000, just over 109,000 new homes completed, far below what it was in 1968, for instance, when 425,000 new sparkling front doors were opened. The main parties agree we need more homes. The European Union thinks we should build more homes. The Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, says we need more homes. They build twice as many as we do every year in his native Canada, he recently noted, despite having about half our population. And it's not just Canada. They build twice as many as we do in Germany. And in France, they're worried about a fall in house building recently. Currently, the figure is 342,000 a year. Now, in the 50s and 60s, as we've been hearing, Britain did build houses at that sort of level, but a sizable chunk of that building was done by the state. The private sector has not since the war ever produced houses in the numbers experts say we need to keep pace with the extra households being created. So, Rachel Fisher, wouldn't it be a good idea for the state to build homes in the same way it builds, I don't know, high-speed railway lines? LAUGHTER
5: <laughs> I think it would be a great idea for the state to invest capital in the building of homes. I think that's pretty unequivocal. And and we know that, for example, for every pound that you spend building an affordable home, you get £2.41 in return for that. Um, And and also, the, the, the thing that we need to remember is that the state was spending more money before this current parliament. In 2010, when we had the Comprehensive Spending Review, we saw a 60% decrease in capital expenditure on housing. That was the biggest capital decrease across the board, and I know that we're living with cuts, and I know that all of this is really difficult, but there was was not a public outcry at that point. There was nothing. There was a sort of vacuum of silence, and it was, oh, okay, fine, so we're saving some money here, and that's okay. But actually, we need to see a return to capital investment in, in housing, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the state will be able to actually build that housing, because what we've seen you know, in the last 30 years of the state not building housing is de-skilling within local authorities. Um, you know, they, they don't know how... Ha- you know, they, they don't have the people in place to well, be able to build, build them. Anymore. Well, they don't have the people in place to be able to do it. And don't forget that this is happening in the context of wider local authority cuts. So, you know, you've got kind of fewer and fewer people trying to do more and more within local authorities. A lot of them want to build homes. The uh, local government association has been arguing that we should be lifting the debt cap, so enabling uh, local authorities to borrow more money to build homes against their existing assets, mm. if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so I would, I would want to see a return to capital investment in, in housing, definitely. Um, but whether or not the state is actually the right place to actually deliver the building of that house, I, you know, I think we need to have a conversation about that.
0: John Stewart, the reality is that despite uh, huge demand, the house builders simply haven't got close to building the kind of numbers of houses that that we need, have they?
4: They haven't for many years, but I dispute the fact when you you, everyone quotes this, that the only times we've ever achieved large numbers of house building in this country is when we've had a very large public sector. It's true, we did have a very large public sector. But let's take 200,000 a year as a rough benchmark. One of the political parties who remain nameless has put that as an aspiration. If the private sector was to build three quarters of that, which I think is eminently achievable, that would be 150,000 homes a year from the private sector. If you look at the post war period, and I'm sorry to quote the numbers, but between 1954 and 1990, the private sector built more than 150,000 homes in 17 years.
2: Minute, on, are si- they? Since
4: 1990, they've only built more than that in one year. That is partly the economic cycle, but actually between 1993 and 2007, we had a very long period of economic growth, but we didn't produce the numbers. It has to go back to planning. Gentlemen in the audience, they groaned when I said that. I'm sorry, that's the harsh reality.
7: Can I just ask a question? Yeah, Wayne, anyway. The house builders at the moment, I'm right in in saying that, uh, in general, they're making a higher return on capital employed, a, a higher ROCE, and making more profit than they've ever done, and they're building less. That's a fact, isn't it?
4: I don't know if they're making record profits. They I are making... I haven't rec- gone back. Okay, I can well, name I you three or
7: four that are making record profits on delivering 50% of what they delivered pre the- Pre crash.
4: The reason they're producing so few is because in, in the run up to the crash, numbers were increasing. It was quite a sharp <laughs> increase in Could it be that, that by, by,
7: de- by delivering less, they're making more profit? No, because that's no, the job of, you know.
4: No. Well, let me ask <laughs> <Because> Richard Blakeway <laughs> <laughs> this. I want to ask
7: Richard Blakeway because this, this particular
0: accusation that actually what's happening is that house builders would rather sit on land which is increasing in value and then they don't need to take the risk of building a, a house that they may struggle to sell It's called land banking. And in London, I'm told there are around. 200,000 unbuilt consented homes. So should we introduce a a use-it-or-lose-it rule for residential land? Do you think that would work?
3: Um, The figure you used is absolutely right. There is a lot of consented land in London that's simply not getting built. And part of that is because that land is owned by people who have no intention of building homes. They're speculating in the London market. They'll purchase a piece of land. They might get planning commission on it then they'll sell it for a profit. So there is a certain amount of speculation. And what we need to do is get that land into the hands of those who will build um, homes. I think there's, there's kind of two issues to, to highlight. The first is, and they're linked, um, the first is it's not just about starting on site, starting a development, or you know, build, um, use it or lose it. It's not about how fast that development goes, how quickly is that development built. And fundamentally... Um, the existing house builder model will have constraints. Now, in a way, we should just let them get on and build what they're building because we we need the homes that they're doing and they've got a model which works. But we need to supplement that. If we need to double house building, the extra needs to come from entirely different sources and a whole new bunch of um, people. And you mentioned Canada, Kenny talking about Canada, and you mentioned Germany and things like that. For example, one of the things we're really missing in the market here uh, in this country compared to the market um, over in North America or in, or in continental Europe, is pension funds investing. And actually, if you bring in pension funds, for example, who can, who can finance house building, that will supplement everything else that the, the big house builders will do, uh, and it will bring new players into the market, it will get homes built more quickly and so on. But it's completely missing here.: All right. Yeah, Paul The The problem is we've restricted supply so drastically
6: that we've turned housing and housing land into sort of an investment asset. It's, because it's, it's, a so nest e- it's a nest egg rather become, than a nest. Instead of a place to live or a place to build or land to build houses on, it's become so scarce and the price goes up so rapidly relative to other prices yeah. that we've actually created incentives for people to overinvest in housing and just hoard land rather than build on it. Okay. You need competition between house builders. Yeah. Okay. Competition can we, we stand on
7: competition? For second, cause it, it's very important. If you, if you look, you, you, know, you were right in, in saying that we need the pension funds to come in and there are examples, especially, in London, like the Get Living London mm-hmm. that, you, that you gave awards to in, in the East Village, at the Old Olympic Village, uh, where, where private rental sector works. But what, what tends to happen, uh, and I know this, because we, we, we've worked enough with house builders, and we've worked enough on bidding, you know, at my company, bidding for land with house builders, and you bid for some land, uh, and it might be able to fit 500, 700 homes on it, and one house builder wins it. They're effectively then in, in a monopoly situation. That would not be the case in Holland or Germany at the moment, where they, re- where they would get 700 homes and they would split that into plots of 150. And four or five developers would then de- deliver at the same time. They'd, they'd be in competition about space, about the, the garden, but most importantly, five building at once means five times the speed of build. John Stewart, not enough competition in your industry. You need to have a bit more fighting going on. <coughs> Excuse me, in
4: 2008 the Office of Fair Trading undertook a study of the house-building industry. And the OFT, they didn't do it because they like house builders. They clearly thought they were going to find something wrong. And they concluded that there is no evidence of what Wayne is referring uh, can to, I, either I, but nationally but or... Of course they I did. Of
7: course they did. Could,
4: could I finish, please? You
7: can, but let me come back in on this.
4: <laughs> OK, Wayne. <laughs> it is, it is a, it, uh, Wayne's already mentioned the return on capital. If a house builder sits on a 700-plot scheme and just builds it slowly, the return on capital will be diluted. So if if it's a a quoted company, the city pressure will be there. And what house builders tend to do with large sites is divide them up into phases, and and they'll either sell some of the land, or often what happens is they'll swap a piece of land. So I've now got a site in Kent, and you've got a site in, I don't know, Berkshire, and we swap a a phase each, and now we've got a distribution of sites.
7: Very very quick quick points. So let's let's say you've got a town... Uh, and you you all live in towns, and there are four house builders uh, building in that town. They're not in a monopoly situation, but one of them builds in a suburb on the west, another one's building in the suburb on the right, another one's in the north, and another one's in the south. The public... Choose to live in an area. They might want to live in the north because it's near the schools, it's near their mother's, where their mother goes to hospital for a treatment or whatever. Uh, and so effectively, on that house site of 500 people, they've got a monopoly of that part of the town. They haven't got, and, and the Monopolies Commission don't understand that because pe- they, they think What's that people just commission? buy houses, but we buy places.
0: Okay, uh, I'm I, I going to, I I to, conversa- to move the conversation on. I'm going to give you a quote, actually. Uh, here it is We need homes for people who need them in the places they want them while protecting our fine landscapes and preserving the Greenbelt. That's how the Prime Minister has described the challenge. (laughs) Who could disagree with that? The trouble is, of course, that 200,000 homes is equivalent to a city the size of Liverpool being built each year. And if you rule out all green field sites, you restrict the opportunities hugely. People often talk about Britain being concreted over. In fact, if you exclude parks and gardens, only... 1.5% of UK land, 2.4% in England, if you're interested, is actually built on. 2.4%. So what does our audience think about the idea of relaxing the rules on building homes on parts of the green belt? Okay, the two choices here are green and homes. If you think we should protect the green belt at all costs, say green. Green. If you think we should allow some development, say homes. Well Poor Cheshire. <laughs> you would be onto our precious green belt with diggers and Earth movers like a shot, wouldn't you? I would not be onto our precious greenbelt.
6: This is the whole problem. <laughs> we, we have this completely mythical view of what the Greenbelt is actually like. You know The Greenbelt, just for London, is nearly three times the size of the GLA area. Within the GLA area itself, there's 32,500 hectares of greenbelt. We're building Crossrail at 18 billion pounds. We're going to bring stations within 30 minutes of central London, but you're not allowed to build houses at Taplow or at Iver because they're in the green belt. But they're you know, surrounded by golf courses and intensive arable land which has no environmental quality whatsoever. We have an unreal view of what the... Real nature of the Green Belt is, of course, we should preserve environmentally valuable land. Of course, we should preserve high-immunity-value land. But the designation is not important. Sometimes brownfield land is extremely environmentally important. There's a proposal to build 5,000 homes on the Hoo Peninsula, which is the single most important uh, nesting ground for nightingales in the whole of the United Kingdom. But the lawyers say it's brownfield land. It's because it's old Ministry of Defence land. What its designation is, is not important. What matters is how environmentally valuable the land is, what amenity value the land is, and there's oceans and oceans and oceans of Greenbelt land, far more than we need to solve all our housing supply problems, which has
0: got almost no environmental value whatsoever. Okay. all right. Well, there's a... There's an argument in favour of, uh, of building on, on the green belt. We're going to hear from a, 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 a member of the audience now, um, who's not keen on plans for new homes where he lives. Patrick Thompson uh, from Highgate Hill in Hawk, Hawkshurst in Kent. Uh, what's your concern? Well, yeah, you. Hold on, we just wait for the microphone. Yes, yes, oh, that's useful.
8: Thank you. Yes, Patrick Thompson, Hawkhurst in Kent. Um, our principal concern is the inability of the council to cooperate with land that is available in in the area. We have a designated quantity of land, uh, of houses. We've been told you've got to build 260 houses by 2026. Near your village. Right. We're now halfway through that. We need to do eight a year, and we've met the target. But what happens is that the council turns up with a developer and says, "Ah, oh, we're going to put 60 houses over here. Right there, beautiful piece of land, but nobody's asked the question. The school is already overloaded, the doctors' surgeries can't cope, and the traffic is already at a standstill. Now our plea is we everybody needs somewhere to live. We've got no objection whatever. But for goodness sake, if you're going to do it, do it properly and from the beginning.
0: Would you allow any house building near your village?
8: Yes. And that we, also, we have designated brownfield sites and there are several greenfield sites which are already under the planning consideration. The brownfield sites have been studiously ignored by our council. Why? Well, it's easier to put 60 houses in one place and just pass the buck to somebody else, isn't it?
0: Okay. All right. We Mitchell think Fisher. that if you
8: use brownfield sites, you, you, it's a gradual growth. You take on um, local labour... Local people build the site, you get a
0: nice mix of housing, and everybody's happy. you also, I think, are concerned about the diversity of the housing. Your, your village, you say, is, is traditional, diverse housing stock, and you're worried about sort of identikit, ticky-tacky houses, I think you well, described it, it.
8: it is to a certain extent, but, I mean, it would be nice, um, but it, it seems to be something that is sort of endemic in Britain, that everywhere you have rows and rows and rows of sort of reproduced housing, um, and when you come to a pretty village that has a huge, lovely, variable mix, it does strike you.
0: And if you use local builders and local designers, you will get a variety. Rachel Fisher, there's clearly a balance to be struck here. Um, but would it be possible, actually, to provide the homes the country needs, as Patrick suggests, using only brownfield sites and an existing housing stock perhaps more efficiently?
5: I think, you, I, think, I think it's about a mix. I don't think that you can provide all of the homes that need to be built using only brownfield sites. I do agree that actually using brownfield sites as, as a way of kind of providing infill and a way of providing diversity and a way of, you know, integrating the newcomers into the community, that makes sense. Clearly it does. Um, I think one of the things I just wanted to come back on a little bit on Greenbelt is that I think often when we talk about this, we conflate Greenbelt and Greenfield, mm-hmm. right? And you know, and I think that's something Paul probably will agree with me on um, that, that the Greenbelt isn't actually nearly as green as we like to think of it as being That there's loads of brownfield land actually designated within Greenbelt and what that comes back to me for is, is that Actually, this is merely a planning designation. This is merely a tool for kind of deciding where we are going to build and how we want to live and how dense we want to be and and all of these sorts of things. We have to remember that the green belt was introduced as a part of a growth deal, right? So we drew green belts around major towns and cities all over the UK in order to then say, but we're going to build new towns over here. So it wasn't we aren't going to build. We didn't build green belts because we didn't want to build houses. We built green belts where they were in order to kind of constrained development as you say, and to kind of prevent American Urban style scroll, dare I say, yes. you know, American style sprawl. And you know, being from Texas, I have to say it is hideous. It is hideous to live in. It is hideous to commute through. You know, it's, it's, it's not great. And even, and even America is trying to densify and create walkable communities. So th- that's why the Green Belt was introduced, and I think we need to remember that. But it was introduced with the balancing policy of having new towns, of having new places where we were going to build houses strategically and say, okay, right, this is where the employment is going to be. This is where the people are going to live. And that kind of goes back to my, my original point about needing to think about all of this a little bit more creatively. Well, the, government,
0: and, the government has been obviously concerned about about the, the, the NIMBY problem, the not-in-my-backyard, people don't want development where they are. David Cameron's also expressed his concern at the bananas. That's the uh, people who think we should build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. And then there's the, um, then there's the development summed up by NOPE not on planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne Hemingway, how might we change people's attitude to development? Because it sounds from what Patrick was saying from Kent, they're not against houses, but they just don't want horrid, ugly houses.
7: Well, obviously, this, we don't, there isn't a, a, such a, a large-scale NIMBY problem in some of our neighbouring countries. You know, um, you look at the research, I- again, in Holland to a... To a degree in Germany and certainly in Scandinavian countries and when when housing is being built they don't people don't think bang goes the neighborhood I mean you're thinking you're right in thinking that quite often by building 61 houses that all look the same to an extent a lot of people are going to say bang goes the neighborhood but what happens in, in near Europe quite often is people say welcome what's what's coming because the design is so good that you get that variation and people think then people start to think well actually it looks pretty good and it's better for society because we need housing, and, and so design is is a big part of it. We have to design better houses. We we have to take more care. We have to have. We have to have a planning. We have to have a. Pl- the, it's not just the planning system. It's the quali- It's the quality of. It's it's what, planning. When you say it, it seems to often be, a, a negative word, uh, and and planning should be, planners can be heroes. And planners should be seen as heroes. It's a heroic profession and something through history that has created the great world that we live in. But unfortunately, planning is put down. And you now, you know, you you look at university applications and oversubscription for people to be architects, oversubscription for people to be designers, and, and yet planners... should be creative, they should be attracting all the brains that that want to be architects, all the brains that want to be designers, and we should be feting them, paying them healthily, uh, and and allowing them to to get through university quickly and and into practice. Uh, Okay.
0: Uh, Now, uh, Wayne was mentioning um, it's slightly different in other parts of Europe. Uh, In the audience, we've got Mark uh, Vlessing. Mark, you started as a a city financier, but you now provide homes (coughs) for key workers. Um, Now, I think you're, you're actually originally from... From Holland, so presumably you're aware of how things differ in, in other parts of, of Europe, particularly the Netherlands. Um, what's your sort of feeling about how we answer this? fundamental question of, uh, of providing more homes and solving the ho- housing crisis.
9: Uh, I have to tell you a little anecdote. When I had a conversation the other day with my mother about a planning application that we were making with my company, which is called Pocket, for 25 flats somewhere, and I told her that there were NIMBYs out in the street with their placards protesting and the local MP who had written letters, and she said, what kind of a planning system is that? We only get out of bed in Holland when Skip Hall is thinking about a seventh runway. <laughs> And, and I think this is one of the lead causes. You know, we have the theatre of planning often rather than actual planning. Think about the word and what planning means. And I don't think we really have a planning system. It's a jumble of rules and regulations and it depends on the performance on the night as to whether you get it through. When I take a train from Amsterdam to Rotterdam, what's fascinating is that I actually don't really ever leave the built environment. We call it the Randstad because we know it's pretty built up extraordinarily well-planned. We're pretty proud of it as well, actually. And if you want to go and have lots of greenery, you go east in our country, and in the West you sort of accept that it's pretty much going to be built up. But there are lots of green spaces in between it. What it fundamentally relies on is three things. It requires a 10- to 12-year plan. It requires the plan to be taken seriously. What's fascinating about the British planning system and the Dutch planning system is they're very, very similar. We have national plans. You have nat- national plans in Britain. We just take them more seriously in Holland. (laughs) The second thing that it requires, hugely important is an understanding of how much public land you have as a country and how you release that public land strategically. If you ask a school child in Holland how much public land is there, they'll tell you it's around 60% of the available land in the country. Why? Because actually until quite recently we were still making the stuff ourselves. We need to defend <laughs> it against the sea. So we have a very, very different attitude towards land than you have in this country. In this country you still have primogeniture, the idea of the oldest son so the, the 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 son inherits things the estate we have very strange attitudes towards land in this country so we need to release public land in a, in a much more fundamentally uh, strategic way. And the third one, I'm afraid it is absolutely the case, you do need to reform the planning system. The only housing economies that work are housing economies where you've got a, a balancing regional government sitting between the 12-year objectives of national government and, on the whole, the NIMBYism of local government. London has it. The GLA has performed an extremely good job in trying to find that level of in, intermediation between
0: national and local government. We need it in the rest of the country. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to take some questions from the from the floor now. Um, so, if you could put your hand up, and when the microphone comes, just uh, uh, say who you are and keep your question nice and brief. Um, take uh, the gentleman on the end up.
10: Yeah, my name is Bernard Casey from the University of Warwick and also LSE.
0: I sit in the embarrassing position of having earned in the last six months more on the home that I live than I've probably earned in the university in the last at least two years. What can you say about that? Interesting point.
1: Um, Yeah, lady lady here. Uh, Laura Gardner from a think tank called the Resolution Foundation. We've heard um, from everyone how unattainable home ownership is becoming for ordinary working people, um, consigning them to the private rented sector, which is the least affordable and offers the least security. So my question is, should we end our national obsession with home ownership? and focus on creating a more secure, more affordable private rented sector for generation rent. And if yes, how should we do it?
0: Some support for that thought. Uh, Let's take another couple of questions, then we'll go to the panel. Uh, Gentleman at the back with a stripy jumper. I'll come to you.
9: Hello, uh, my name is Ben Pickup and I hail from London. I work in, uh, I'm a 22 year old and I'm uh, kind of looking around and buying houses at the moment, but I rent and it's quite expensive. Anyway, uh, in light of kind of ever increasing sort of divorce rates uh, in the UK and, and kind of uh, our, our kind of socialist movement towards uh, a very social kind of networking world that we live in now, um, do you think that the housing crisis could be solved? Uh, by actually removing our concept of the family and making all inheritance illegal.
0: Mm. That's that's quite a radical idea. Um, we'll we'll, We'll consider that one. A gentleman
10: over there. My name is Mike Franks. I'm the chairman of the Mount Pleasant Association. and We're trying to make a serious offer to work in partnership with Royal Mail who conspicuously ignore us, not only do they ignore us, but everybody else on the panel has not mentioned the word localism or third sector or local communities or the power of any social enterprise to work alongside developers and people who own land and people who finance land. We're asking to be a serious partner with developer. Mount Pleasant, um, the Royal Mail doesn't have a developer yet, they're going for upping their land value by just getting a permission. I hope that the GLA will not give them the permission outright because the next developer comes along, will inflate a new permission, and so it will go on increasing the value of the land. You just feel squeezed out of the conversation, do you? You don't feel that you've got a place at the table? Anyone's taking not at all, and I'm surprised that we don't talk about the power of land banks and the third sector generally to involve themselves and the users of housing the, only, the people who want to be there involved. You won't get planning arguments if people feel are, they are involved. Okay, mm-hmm. take one more question from the floor. Yep. Jump in Alex Hill, CPRA Protect Kent. In Gravesham, the council backed local residents with a housing figure. This has been overturned by the housing inspector. Uh, who see greatly increased the number of houses to accommodate people from outside the borough. My question is, is localism dead?
0: OK, two good questions on localism, one on family inheritance and uh, the national obsession with ownership. Let's take the the, the, the obsession with, with ownership, first of all. Uh, uh, Rachel, do you, do you think perhaps we have just for too long assumed that that's really the best tenure? If only you could just get bricks and mortar, all would be well. We need to think about a private rented sector that's a bit, bit funky, a bit cool. <laughs> Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay like, sorted that yeah let's
5: do that let's just fix it um no and I, and I think one of the things i would say is that um housing associations the people that i represent have been really kind of at the forefront of thinking about how we can have a more professionalized offer for the private rental sector so investing in london in particular um things like fizzy living which i kind of read about in the economist sort of like every week it's kind of you know so so these these very this kind is of a
0: this is sort of a so cool th- branded private it is. rented yeah. so it's 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 it, it feels like something you'd want to do rather than the last resort
5: exactly and I I think that, you know, in the UK, you've got an incredibly, well, in England specifically, you've got a very, very fragmented private rental offer. You've got a lot, a lot, a lot of very little landlords. Um, and that and that can be problematic in terms of having a consistency of approach across um, across you know, how you would manage those those properties. And we all heard the horror stories. Um, they're kind of in the media sort of weekly at the minute um, about people who ha- who are living in really horrible conditions. I mean, I think it's worth saying that it's a pretty mixed picture out there. Um, and I know that um, I'm sure Richard would want to come in on this. Um, the mayor has recently introduced a, a rental standard, which you know I think is is a, is a step in the right direction. But we really need to be thinking about how we're going to invest in these um, kind of large scale private rented, uh, a large scale private rented sector.
0: Richard Blackway, yes, do, do you think that actually we should just give up on this, you know, the, the, the dream of owning our own home and just, just do what often they do in other parts of Europe and just, just rent?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the picture in London is slightly different to the rest of England um, and um, despite, you know, it's just grown the, to two million people now renting in London and to be honest, it's been Overlooked for to- far too long by um, policy makers and it's absolutely right that that rented sector has proper professional standards set there property pro- proper property conditions set and so on and it, it's actually quite a rigorous um, industry and rigorous um, sector. I think the problem is that um, if you refer to something called the English housing survey it will tell you that 49% of people who rent actually want to own. And um, in some ways, that's actually could arguably could be a lower figure than, than, than you might expect. But there's obviously still this drive amongst households to um, try and purchase property. I think, I, I, I think the, the, the big challenge that um, people keep referring to is, you know, clearly if you're able to uh, purchase even just a share in, uh, in a property, that that will will increase in value. And that kind of increase in value comes in very useful later on in life. And I think that's part of the problem that we face here, is um, how can we offer the same stability and so forth for people who are renting that they feel that people who own have.
7: Okay, Wayne, Hemingway. I'm one of these people who keep cuttings, and I went through a file of my housing file at the office. You brought with you. And this is from 2005, and this is from 2005. Uh, and, and, and quite a lot of, and we're saying all the same things that we said. You know, nothing is, hardly anything has changed apart from prices have gone up uh, <laughs> it, since 2005. But within this article, it, it shows that in Germany and France, that they 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 also uh, want to have our system. They want to they want to own own houses. Now, if we are going to if we are going to offer more private rental and uh, better than we're doing it now, then we have to give people. Uh, very long tenures and and that's a big big change from where we are because for those of us lucky enough to have to have owned houses and own houses now we all know how wonderful it is to to decorate to do the garden to do all the things that it's part of life not 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 to make money but because it's yours and you want to protect it in the same way some people love to buy an old car and, and and do it up. And so I don't think we should give up on the idea that, that, that part of life is to own a property uh, and to be able to put your sweat equity into it as a couple, as a group or whatever, and get the joy out of it. Um, you know, but, if you, but, if, but you've also got to be able to do that. If you can't do it in a house that you own, you've got to, have the, to be able to do it in a house that you rent. And unfortunately, you can't at the moment. Okay, Portra.
6: In some ways, I think this is a bit of a red herring because all forms of housing tenure are substitutes for each other. And the underlying fundamental problem is that we've built something like 1.6 to 2.3 million houses too few over the last 20 years. So the trouble is that if people are being squeezed into the rental sector... And that itself is going to continue to make worse, this sort of housing haves versus housing have-nots, because the real price of housing is going to go on going up. And if you're not in there, then you're going to be losing out in the long term. Mm. Now, of course, five years' time, prices may collapse again, because one of the other features of our system is that you get more and more price volatility. Prices go up fiercely. They go down fiercely, too.
0: But in the long run, they're going up if we don't build more houses. Let me ask you about localism. It came up on a couple of questions. Um, And the concern is that actually we talk a lot about local people making local decisions, about local planning and local housing, and actually I get a sense that people feel that they're not involved either in building houses or in preventing developments that they don't want.
6: Well, I think localism also is a bit of a red herring, The problem is, you need decisions made by people who both win from development and by people who lose from development. And of course, if you live locally, then you lose as a result of development. And the system should provide you with compensation, it should provide the people in Kent with proper infrastructure to support the extra housing. Yeah, but, Rachel Fish, you want to cut in.
1: I really kind of
5: feel like you can't position this that people lose from uh, lose from development. That that absolutely isn't the case. Of course so, the local people do. No, I local lo- people do. I don't. lose what? my
6: asset value because I no longer have a view of open fields. I lose my I get more congestion on my local roads and I have noise and dirt when the houses are being built. That's a lot. it's very very localized and that's the, one of the problems of localism.
5: But one of the one of the biggest arguments in favor of localism I think is that when you look at Things like neighbourhood planning. When you look at all of the different kind of um, sort of mechanisms that have been introduced in terms of trying to get local people more engaged, what we find is the more people are actually engaged in these debates, the more people are actually talking about the issues, the more likely they are to recognise, as um, as colleagues in the audience have recognised, they need more homes in their area. They're not saying they don't like need more homes your in their evidence area. Evidence on that. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come to John,
0: I, I, w- I want to come to John Stewart now because uh, uh, you know representing the the house builders how do they see this localism agenda? Is it, is it a helpful thing? Do they feel that they've got a good relationship with the people in the areas where they're trying to build?
4: Mm. Well, some house builders have been very good at engaging with local communities before the, the coalition government got in. Um, but the coalition government has supposedly got a system of localism, and it's made it pretty obligatory for house builders to consult local communities. But the dilemma that I can... I mean, the, the trouble is there are so many strands to this discussion. One of the dilemmas is, of course, if you... Allowed pure localism, which is what many people thought that the Conservatives were talking about, that was a licence to say no, and we wouldn't have nearly enough homes. Gentlemen down here meant, talked about a national plan. We don't have a national plan. We merely have local Should authority. you have one? Do you think? Oh no, no. go off. That, <laughs> that, that failed in the 70s. Let's not go there. Can I make a couple of other points as well? There, there's been a lot of talk about what I would regard as effects, not causes. The fact that house prices are extremely high in relation to incomes. Um, the fact that Uh, It's very hard for young people to buy housing. The fact that a very large increase in the number of young people still living at home, I know from personal (coughs) experience, there's been a big increase in the number of of younger people living in multi-person households. There's all kinds of things happening. We all know this, and we all know why. All I'm interested in is practical suggestions as to what you can do about it. Take the so-called obsession with owner-occupation. We're not uniquely obsessed with home ownership. Canada, the United States, my own home country, New Zealand, Australia, other countries in Europe have similar, higher, lower levels of home ownership. But simply saying that doesn't solve it. What are we supposed to do in a free and democratic society? Who's going to go out there and beat all you people over the head and say, you can't aspire to home ownership anymore, you've got to rent. And finally, the, the private rented sector is often a complete red herring. It's as though we have a housing under supply, oh, the solution is a private rented sector. Sorry, the solution is we don't have enough homes. <laughs> Simply having... If we only build, build 110,000 a year and 50% of them are private rented, or, or t- 30% or 20% are private, the fact is we still only build 110,000 a year. Okay. We need to solve the housing crisis. And I've heard very few practical suggestions and well, that is what practical people could do.
0: One practical suggestion which is very popular at the moment is this idea of a new generation of garden cities. Comforting form of words garden city I think much less threatening than urban sprawl um, and actually the phrase dropped from, from Her Majesty's lips in the Queen's speech last week you may recall but we've been talking about new garden cities since well certainly since the 90s uh, and in all that time we've seen the building of, uh, of, of, of none at all um, Paul Cheshire is that the answer are we going to see a, a new generation of garden cities to solve our housing crisis no
6: It is is mildly helpful, you know, if you build 150,000 houses in a very, very large garden city, which is what that would be, that would do something to help solve our undersupply of housing. But it isn't an answer on its own. We should be building houses where there's jobs, where people have access to those jobs. And, you know, we've got three London tube stations in the Greenbelt. We've got how many uh, stations on Crossrail in the Greenbelt? You could put just in the 32,500 hectares of Greenbelt in London, if you squeeze them in at the current permitted densities, which I'm actually not in favour of, that's 1.6 million houses. You could just put in the Greenbelt within the GLA area. I'm not saying we should do that, but it just illustrates how much land is actually available. John Stewart. Uh,
4: I don't think householders are against um, garden cities or or new towns or whatever you call them. The point is time scale. Um, My colleagues who work in the strategic land world and the world of very large housing developments. And by very large, I mean three, 5,000 units. Not a garden city, obviously. They, their instant reaction is, well, it'll be 8 or 10 years before we get any housing out of it. And that's the nature of planning in this country, and that's the nature of the way we do things. It's not a short-term solution. It may make a contribution 7, 8, 10, 15 years from now, but let's not kid ourselves that it's going to help anything in the next few years.
0: Okay, I'm going to come to the audience now, uh, but not for questions. I'm looking for answers, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Who's got the magic bullet for the, uh, for the housing crisis? Um, John Struthers, yes. You, you're, you've got an interesting story to tell about, uh, a personal story about how you've solved your personal housing
6: crisis. Yep. My name's John Struthers, Headway Self Build. I decided to lobby my housing association and my local authority to help build my own home. And I'm doing this with a group of nine self-builders. Um, there's a plot of land in Wolfen Forest... And um, we are actually building 10 homes. One of the homes is a fully adaptable wheelchair unit house. We're building this to turn back around and rent from the Housing Association. I couldn't sit there for what they class is, a 10-year waiting list. I know it's a lot longer than that, with my family growing around me. So um, I decided to get up and help myself. And I think that more people should know that this is is available and it's a solution to get them out of a hole. So you turn these old
0: garages into houses. When when do you move in, John?
6: I move in um, January 2015.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. So I'm looking... I'm, look, I'm looking for solutions, then. I only want hands for solutions. Right, gentlemen there. Oh, no, lady, lady over there. Yes, we've got your solution, please. Thank you
11: very much. Um, my name's Diane. I come from a council estate. <laughs> but I've got a daughter who has got two children, so a couple with two children, a one-bedroom flat. Um, you've put the solutions forward. If there's enough land, which is what we usually think there's not enough land, but you've just told us there is, and in which case do what Wayne Hemingway said, which is instead of giving it to one company, do what they do in other countries and give it to four or five different companies and let them all build at the same time,
0: including lots of schools. It's (laughs) nice and clear. Um, Gentleman at the back over there, please.
10: Uh, My name's Robert. I worked as a surveyor in housing in London for several years. And one of the uh, contributory factors to the crisis that we have today is the amount of void housing in uh, public ownership. Um, I understand there are 800,000 empty homes in the UK, and something like 4 or 5% of those are in uh, local authority ownership. Uh, this would make um, some difference to the uh, problem that we have, I think, if this were resolved.
0: Okay, a good one. Um, uh, gentlemen. there. Um, Hi, my name's James
4: Squid williams I'm a lecturer at Regent's University around the corner in London. Um, Richard, what you said before about um, shared ownership, I don't agree at all, and I think it's horrible that you're standing there advocating it. Um, And, John, I see you as a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing clothing up there, kind of saying that, you know, the problem is... uh, uh, the planning system, most of what's planned is actually built. Um, but yet you guys constantly lobby government to come up with new um, schemes that basically push up asset prices, um, new buy, shared ownership, et cetera. There's so many schemes over the last few years that I can't even uh, list them all. But if you look back, they keep changing the names and it's pronounced as a solution, but it's not. What we need is a solution that actually gets things built and developed rather than pushing up asset prices and then allow you to come back and saying there's a problem with the market,
0: so can you give us a solution that allows more people to buy things that further increases prices? Okay. I'm going, to take, uh, I'm going to take two more, um, two more solutions uh, from, from our audience. The young man on a striped shirt has been trying for ages. I can't. The balcony is out of, out of microphone reach. Oh, have you got one? No. If you want to come down, we might be able to do it. We need to move quickly. Uh, chep in a striped shirt here.
12: You've sat in the worst possible place for <laughs> microphone handling. Hi, my name's Simon Shufo. I'm from Naked House Community Builders and it's on the point to do with custom builds, and I can't afford to house myself, Um, so I'm all behind us building as many houses as we can. My worry is the delivery method. If we're relying on the big developers, they've honed their business model so finely that the things people want, like a decent sense of community, good design, energy efficiency, security, those things are seen as costs. So my worry is the sort of housing we're going to be producing for future generations. Solution... Is custom build. in other countries? Austria, they build 80%. We talked about Germany. They love a bit of it. They're doing loads of it here. <laughs> we're somewhere around the 10% mark. So it's a genuine solution whereby people can build houses that are better suited to their needs and adaptable over time. Okay. 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 All right.
0: La- lady
11: here. Yeah. Thank-, thank you, chair. Very kind of you to let me come down. And I'm, I'm the female side of things, if you like. Um, I think you are the female side of things, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, now, the sort of background to what I productively wanted to say, or creatively or constructively wanted to say, is that um, to anyone who's lived in Africa, there's buckets of land and there's lots of people. A lot of those people are coming over here. And it's one of the pressures that are on our housing lists that it's partly because of people wanting to settle here. Fair enough, no one's criticising that as such, but that is one of the growth problems. And you only have a certain amount of carrying capacity in each land area, um, on any, particularly on an island. So I don't want to sort of put all my comments on that, but it is certainly one that you've not referred to at all. That's why I'm putting it there. Um, now, I come from Greenwich, and um, I'm a designer, when I was a student at the Central um, College, um, the first high-rise went up. and that, that old, if you like, um, in place of the small streets in Camberwell. And um, I lived at that time in a, a hostel equivalent of, um, and subsequently as a student, and then as a professional designer. I worked as this um, qualified student was saying she had. I lived in a basement... Um, she lived in a cupboard, I lived in a basement with a boiler. And
0: oh, She was in the airing cupboard, you were in the boiler room. That's
11: exactly, yeah. yes. It was still difficult, I'm, the point of my saying this, is it was still difficult for students then. It's not really, I think, got that much more difficult than it was then, but okay. the number of people who are wanting to be um, educated in central London are. Okay. And certainly we've expanded in Greenwich with the university there, and a whole lot of colleges as well. And the main people I see studying, not in their own um, colleges, but are the um, students who come and who use the libraries in Greenwich. Okay. There are two very good new ones. All
3: right. And every
11: weekend, they, they don't study in their colleges, they study there. I think the Greenwich now, library means the capacity is, is
0: probably one we'll... we'll, we'll the we'll, capacity we'll is being afraid. extended
11: to accommodate them. Okay. And I would add... Uh, I look at the planning applications every month with my colleagues from the immunity groups and we see the growth as it has been in the southeast of England, mm-hmm. southeast of London in particular, um, Greenwich, Lewisham and the surrounding boroughs. Okay. Madam, so, I, I, I'm, gonna, well, I'm gonna gonna I like to now, going to leave it.
0: We're going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Now, we're going to leave... We have a... Solution, uh, solution. Oh, all right, well, very quickly. We needed a, so- uh, a solution. millennium village. Good.
11: We came up with a millennium village. Yep. As a solution, and I was brought up on Ibercrombie's plan, so I know all about that, and I did a huge study for the British Council on new towns and buildings, so I used to know all about that. And w- at that time, when Woolwich was added in to Greenwich, 1965, to make one big borough, it was Thamesmead that was the new town then. And now they're proposing that Thamesmead should be one of the new green cities. And waiting. I support that. Because half the problem is that with man wanting to take what he wants of the land to put his own population on, there isn't going to be enough land, not just for supporting man, but also supporting wildlife and, and species. Okay, thank you, and you very so much indeed. we had
0: full value there. Thank you for coming down to give us your thoughts. Um, A lot of really good solutions uh, from our our audience. I don't know how many of them are practical, but I'm going to come to our (laughs) panel now for, well, really a solution from from each of you, if you would. Um, That's what we're after. An
3: answer. Richard Blakeway. Um, We've talked a lot about um, the Green Belt, about garden cities and and, and so forth, and I I really don't think we can ignore the fact there is tons of land that can still be built on um, within London. This is land which may have had industrial purposes before. This may be land in town centres. There's 200 town centres in London where there's lots of land that could be developed. And we shouldn't lose sight of that because ultimately that's providing homes where there is the greatest demand for homes in this country, and that that is um, London. What it requires, though, is is a number of things. And probably the first thing and the biggest thing is a a kind of Olympic-style effort to clean up that land and get it out to market. I like the idea that you might have multiple developers on that on, on that land, but I think it's the role of, of um, us, the public sector, to really get that land out to market and clean that land up. That doesn't necessarily mean just publicly owned land. There's about 40,000 homes being built on land owned by the mayor in London, but there could be 300,000 homes built in uh, on the brownfield sites that the capital... Um, has just a very very quick final thought because the the biggest prob- problem um, as as we know that the city um, faces is that there's a risk that you either have to be very rich or very poor um, to be able to um, um, access housing and live in that city. So really, the two options um, for those people, those many many people who who feel kind of stuck in the middle, is is either to radically improve the rented offer um that there is in the capital, um which is one thing and 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 should happen. And the second thing I think is to help people get a share in their home. And I know that people have been sceptical about shared ownership. But I have to say when it's when you've got homes where the average household income is something like thirty five thousand pounds, two person income is something like thirty five five thousand pounds and the average deposit is something like £8,000, and that when that home is resold, it can go to someone in similar circumstances, I think that's a great product. Okay. But at the moment, sorry, f- sorry Mark, but at the moment, only 1.7% of all of London's housing stock falls into that category. It's tiny, and we've got to scale it up to help the many, many people who want to live here and work here. Okay.
0: Uh, Well, Mark, yes, not sceptical reaction from the audience to that one. Uh, John Stewart, how how would you solve the housing crisis?
4: Can I quickly answer two of the questions that were raised? Very briefly. That's OK. The the point about large land allocations, local authorities have control over the, the land that's released, and they grant planning permission. If a local authority has a requirement for 500 homes a year and allocates it on one site... Then a local authority only has itself to blame. If there were more sites, actually you'd get more housing. The point about HBF lobbying to push up asset prices I find it absolutely extraordinary. What we lobby for is that we can build more homes. that will help bring house prices down. but the, the, my fundamental point is that unless someone has got a magic wand to fund a very large public house building program, and I think that 's in the world that 's in the world of La La land, we will have to rely like it or not, primarily on the private sector. And I've said several times. I think maybe three quarters of the homes will come from the private sector. That includes communities and self-build, which will make a contribution to that. But a, a lot of it will have to come from the private developers. They operate in a market economy, and if you regulate them to the to the you know the the colour of door handles and um, and and cupboard latches, you will not get the private sector to deliver because it can't. It must be able to respond to housing demand.
0: Okay, Rachel
5: Fisher. Thanks. Um, so I think I think. Sorry I so many thoughts Partly because One solution is that I like to live in La La Land, frankly. Um, I, I think that you know what we need to be thinking about is actually how can we make the investment that we do have, how can we make that go further? Who are the actors, who are the people who are going to be able to develop houses, who are going to be building the houses? How can we possibly pool the money, all of the different kinds of money that go into building places? How do we do that in a smarter way, possibly through an investment bank? I know London's been thinking about these kinds of things. Um, we also really need to sort out the land. We need to sort out... um, finding sites, allocating sites getting public sector sites released quickly Um, kind of the government continually says we're going to be building all these houses on public sector land and yet I'm not seeing all of these houses being built on public sector land we need to sort that out But one of the really important things for me, the real solution to this, is actually getting people to say yes to homes. Getting local communities to say, do you know what, this is what we need. We need more houses in our area. We need people campaigning. We need people lobbying their local councillors because like it or not, all of these decisions that we're talking about right now, they all come back down to very, very local decisions that are made by local councillors. And we need people writing into their councillors to say, do you know what, I'm affected by the housing crisis and... I think that we need to be building more homes in my area and that i want to be involved in where those houses go
0: okay paul cheshire
6: well the fundamental problem is we have a real crisis of undersupply we just haven't been building enough and it doesn't respond to prices and underlying that the single most important factor is the lack of land availability so if you can get permission to convert a hectare of agricultural land to building houses on through the planning system on the edge of London or the edge of Oxford the price goes from about 10,000 pounds a hectare to about 8 to 10 million pounds a hectare that is the market telling us there is a gross distortion of supply and demand so we have to supply more we have to supply more than is in some sense needed than the planning system thinks is needed because you have to have competition between sellers at the moment you allocate 60 hectares or whatever it may be, that may all be in one ownership. You have to have people competing against each other to sell the land to build on and developers competing to do the developing. And you need a simpler planning system. And we had the guy from Holland. One of the key issues of continental planning is that you have a rule-based system. There's something which tells you what you're allowed to do on this, each plot of land, what the rules are, and... You find out what those rules are, and you ask to do it, and you get permission. It takes about fortnight, generally. In Britain, it can take two years, three years, four years. Well, it's too complicated, okay. and that makes it too difficult for small builders to get into it. OK,
7: finally, Wayne Hemingway. Well, there's a general election coming up next year, uh, and there's a, a group of people in here, and, and you've got your contemporaries. Lots, lots of your peers are probably not as political as you. You go to the LSE, a lot of people in here. You have to get out there and vote, you have to get out there and your contemporaries have to get out there and vote for the party that agrees to deliver a significant amount more housing than is being delivered today. You also have to get on planning committees. Anybody in this room, as long as they're 18, I think, I think that's the age, can, be, can, be, can get elected and get onto planning committees. You, you can all start to make a difference. Just get political. OK, so thank you to our panel. One, um, one
0: last... Totally unscientific vote from our audience. Um, Do we think our political leaders have thought hard enough about how to answer the question, where we all live? Yes or no? Okay. So those who think they're doing their best, say yes. Thank you to our audience. Thank you to our panel. Thank you to the London School of Economics for accommodating us. And I leave you with this thought. What is a home? A home is a place where you can scratch where it itches. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed, and good night.